Hey everyone, I'm Alan Schimmel and welcome to another episode of CISO Talk. I am joined by my co-host, Matt Newfield. Matthew is the uh, CISO over at Unisys and Matt, welcome. Pleasure to be here. It's good to talk to you again. And Matt and I are joined by our usual sidekick playing Ed McMahon this week, Mitch Ashley. <laughs> and introduce you. To like, his, uh, <laughs> yes. uh, Mitch is, of course, CEO, founder of Accelerated Strategies Group. And our guest for this episode is Miranda Ritchie of IVM. Miranda, welcome and thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Miranda Ritchie and I'm a global delivery leader at IBM's Managed Security Services. Excellent. And thank you. So, Guys, the theme for this week's show is cybersecurity and healthcare. You know, and, and we were talking a little bit, you know, in the in the green room. Well, I'm in a green room, but uh, we were talking a little bit before turning on the recording about, you know, the unique, the unique, the whole just the uniqueness of cybersecurity and healthcare, where we're not necessarily talking about financial gain or you know stealing money we're not even really at this point talking about personally identifiable information and hipaa information at this point we're talking about the life and death nature that cyber threats can pose to individuals you know it, as a result of being you know within the healthcare industry so with that as a backdrop matt i'm going to ask you to kind of kick us off today and and uh, get us started. Yeah, absolutely, Alan. You know, a few years ago, it was all the rage in the cybersecurity world to talk about how we had broached over or moved over from being in this virtual world to where the cybersecurity code, uh, attack code, could actually impact physical things. Um, and you can remember some stories about uh, refinement machines being destroyed via bits and bytes. And that was that was a real eye-opener for a lot of people when it came to infrastructure and critical infrastructure at the time. Now we're starting to really see in the news a lot lately about how these cybersecurity attacks, these, these adversarial attacks, can impact much more than what we're used to reading about. We read about dollars, as you said. We read about our data, personally identifiable information, and we think it really stops there. Maybe it goes to reputation. Maybe it goes to me losing my checking account. But there's a lot of talk right now, and healthcare being the, the, the main area, about how it can impact life. And we've heard stories before, but this has been one of the real big ones. And whether or not you believe that this, this poor individual in Germany actually died because of the ransomware attack against the Dusseldorf University Clinic, um, is almost irrelevant. It's opened the conversation up, and as we were discussing in the green room, it expands beyond to, to a much greater level of how is it we are going to, as a community of cybersecurity professionals, help to protect an infrastructure and help secure and lock down an infrastructure when you really look at that environment as something that has never really been locked down before, and is run and utilized by a group of people where seconds do matter. Take away ransomware, seconds matter. And if you put too many gates in place, your cybersecurity could impact life. And it just opens up a very interesting conversation that I'm very excited to have with you, Alan, Miranda, and Mitch today. 
Absolutely. So, Miranda, you as the new person here, I, I'm gonna. We don't don't wait for us to call your name. Feel free to jump in, and 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 uh, comment, and you know, take the conversation where you want it to go. But you know, you're right, man. It, it's life and death, and and you know, for some of in our audience may not be familiar with the Dusseldorf uh, case of of this person who might have died. Does anybody want to just kind of give a quick brief on on the fact pattern there? Does anybody know the fact pattern there? I do. So okay. uh, there was a 78-year-old woman who was experiencing cardiac arrest. Uh, she was picked up by an ambulance. The ambulance, through a ransomware attack in the hospital, was rerouted to a hospital that was much further away than the one she should have gone to. So when the ambulance crew arrived, they picked this poor woman up who was experiencing a, a significant medical emergency. And instead of going to the closest hospital, the system routed to a hospital further away and it was blamed on a ransomware attack. And again, there is no evidence today. And I, you know, if people comment, we're not here saying that caused her death. There's no evidence to say if they had cut five, 10 minutes off of that trip, she would have survived. But it, again, it opens that relevant point. Let's say there'd been another medical emergency where five minutes would have mattered. You can well, yeah, no. In, in medical emergencies, minutes and seconds count, and and anything, whether it's cybersecurity related or any other relate, you know, related. If it if it's shaving minutes, you know, costing you minutes and seconds, people's lives are at risk. Right, and. And Miranda, you and I were talking a little while ago about, you know, this an extension, you know, we, we could go to that extreme of, you know, what's going on in a hospital with ransomware and what's going on with it, the heart monitors. But you you had a really interesting perspective and in, in conversation around uh, PPE and, and that supply chain. I think that could be a really interesting conversation as well. Yeah, yeah. So earlier this year, um, IBM reported on a on a campaign targeting a task force that was, you know, the, the sole purpose was to supply, you know, act as a supply chain for personal protective equipment. Um, this was in Europe. And so, you know, even though they're targeting, you know, through phishing, they're targeting over 100 individuals at that task force, probably to steal information. It's not necessarily to encrypt their data. Uh, it's just part of the race for a vaccine, race for the cure, right? Um, but as a, as a byproduct of that or collateral damage of that, if you're restricting people's access to PPE in an already, you know, tight crunch situation where there's not enough to go around, you know, you're still putting people's lives at risk if they're having to reuse, you know, old equipment. I'm thinking too, Miranda, the whole supply chain integrity problem, right? Right. Is that kind of an attack or is this truly, you know, valid PPE or whatever that is drug that we're delivering vaccine? Or has it been compromised? Is it falsified? And you have to maintain that chain of control in, in your supply chain. And you lose that. There could be lives at the other end that immediately are, are at stake. Right, right. If the PPE is tainted or if testing equipment is faulty and it's returning a, a different false positive rate than it necessarily should be, that's mm -hmm. definitely something to consider. Yeah, I mean, right. you can even take that to an interesting extreme to say if, if let's say a, a bad actor was able to breach one of these suppliers, think of in healthcare again, you know, the people who are making a vaccine and they beat them to market with a vaccine that may not work or may have implications later, you could go to an extreme to say there, there could be that the human factor of I get really sick from the vaccine or the vaccine doesn't help me, but 
you said something a second ago that really stuck my head, which is that false positive. What if I think I'm cured? What if myself and my thousand closest friends think we're cured and then we go to that stadium and infect other people and you end up with potentially another strain of this virus um, or super you, spreader event. You end up with a super spreader event because again, you're, you know, you're finding a cheaper alternative that sounds like it's the same thing when it's not. And Black, it Black Sunday 2 or something like that would be another good movie. But, you know, guys, when, when, I hear, <clears throat> when I hear you talking about these things, in my mind, we're, th there's two camps. One camp is the ransomware attack, the supply chain attack that Miranda mentioned, and... You know, the, the, the cost to human health care or the, you know, the cost to humans who, as a result of health care, is almost collateral damage. I didn't ransomware the hospital because I meant that lady to die. Or I didn't do something to the supply chain because I wanted to cause that nurse not to have an N95 mask. I did it, you know, I did it because I'm a scorpion and that's what I do, right? So I, I killed the frog halfway across the river. But... Then there's another type of attack altogether, and that is the on purpose, I'm trying to kill someone attack, right? And that is, that is more kind of what we, when you talk about, you know, we've seen, can we control someone's pacemaker? Can we hack into someone's pacemaker or insulin pump or, or something like that? You know, and that now you're starting to get into, you know, state-sponsored, not even espionage, but murder, assassination. Yeah. Well, they, you know, we we do that through, Russia does that supposedly through poisons today. We hear about all the... I don't think you have to say supposedly anymore. It's been pretty well documented. Trying to be PC here a little uh, bit. Yeah, unless people, unless people apply neurotoxins to themselves, but whatever. But, yeah, yes, you're no, talking there about is that. frogs and scorpions, so, you know. Yeah, <laughs> well, I was trying to... What's the word there? An, uh, an Aesop's fable, right? Yeah. Um, but, but no, I mean, it's, so I think as cybersecurity professionals, we have to worry about both of these scenarios, right? The inadvertent collateral damage of individuals' health care as a result of cyber activity, and then the, the on-purpose uh, downright murder of of individuals using cyber using cyber uh methods right terrorism can you imagine a, and i don't even want to say it out loud i'm afraid someone will get an idea but a tainted virus a tainted vaccine tainted vaccine yeah right you know you you can take it to the murder where you know someone shuts that pacemaker off someone you know turns that mri machine on when someone's in there doing work and the magnet turns on and and rips a pacemaker out of your chest but you could go that extreme you could also think of ransomware in a new variant right now ransomware is about give me dollars and cents or i'm going to steal or sell your data you, you know the other variant i'm hearing from you and miranda i don't know if you've seen this in the wild or hear any chatter on this but I could also hold your hospital short-term ransom. You've got 20 minutes to pay Bitcoin or I will not turn your neonatal intensive care unit systems back on. Can you imagine? Yeah, and we're also seeing kind of an uptick in these blended ransomware attacks similar to Maze, right? 
where they're not just encrypting your data, but they're taking it first and then playing a sort of name and shame game, right? Where they've got this wall of fame and they're going to publicly out you. I mean, imagine if that happened to a pharmaceutical company who did have, you know, a cure or a vaccine. That's, yeah. that's, that's the keys to opening up the economy. There is a huge financial incentive for taking that data and exposing it publicly. Yeah, absolutely. Or not exposing it and just trying to replicate it yourself to balance point of nation state actors. And, you know, these, this is really what scares people in this profession is so, okay, what do you do? How do you convince doctors and nurses and practitioners in these environments whose entire lives have been focused on a singular mission to save human life, a very noble mission, but when you add that securely to the end, that is that is a new realm. That's a new realm for some of the pharmaceutical companies. That is a new realm for hospitals and a lot of doctors and nurses. And you know, some of us may come across and go, "Come on, you know, you you got to do this stuff. It's you, you have to take cybersecurity seriously." But I get it. If if you're a doctor and your sole focus is to go in and do brain surgery or in the neonatal units to make sure those children live. How do we as cyber professionals broach that gap and that divide to say, but we wanna make sure this potential thing that that doctor probably has never experienced in their life, a ransomware attack, a virus, you know, something that you read about, but may not, in how do you bridge that gap? And that, I think, Mitch, I don't know if you've, thought through this, but in your experience, how do you bridge that gap? Yeah, it, it's, it's interesting you asked that because um, both Alan and I have some experience selling uh, security solutions into medical environments, into hospitals, and every environment has its own kind of unique personality. And I think maybe the personalities of doctors is kind of infamous of, of uh, you know, what it's like to work in that kind of environment. Um, and I know exactly what you're talking about. It's that thing that gets in the way for me, not just doing my job, saving a life, you know, taking care of this patient, my, my, my oath, right, to do no harm. So you're talking about a whole, whole nother lo level of it. I, I wonder if there are, are places where we can replace things like tokens and passwords with something you wear where proximity will enable you to use a piece of equipment and log on to something instead of, fat finger in your password for the third time or have I, I forgot my my card right but something that you can wear as part of your things that make the environment as you enter uh, open up and and give you the secure access those kind of approaches rather than the, the typical things we think of in a corporate environment like passwords and token cards and things like that I think to some extent, we also have to kind of go back to the basics and look at how these threat actors are doing what they do. And it's not sexy, it's not cool, but spam mm -hmm. and phishing accounts for such a huge percentage of day-to-day -day attacks, including the one that I mentioned earlier about the attack on the, on the PPE supply chain. Um, when we talk about ransomware, whether it's, you know, the, the plain old encryption variety or the information stealing name and shame variety, um, a lot of it is still coming in through through email and a lot of you know, attackers are playing off people's fear to get them to open email. You know, if you get an email that says urgent, you know, COVID vaccine related, you're more likely to click on it than if you think it's, you know, a, a you know, Nigerian prince 
<laughs> well, and there's a lot of publicly available information about what's happening with COVID specifically, where the hot spots are, where the increases are, the testing rates, you know, the positive rates of that. And I think many of us, most of us fully expect there'd be all kinds of fishing to say, in this location in Iowa, if it's a hot spot, go blanket those folks. You can get the vaccine today. We will overnight it to you tomorrow and get you on the program now enter your credit card or whatever. I mean, you know that stuff's going to happen if it's not already happening. Oh, yeah, it is. And, I, I, you know, we, we've had other shows, uh, Alan, where we talk about that get back to basics, and, you know, you and I have been bantering that around. But I, it, it is very true. It gets to the point here of maybe the angle that we need to take in industry is to help not overly secure an environment, but help them get back to basics so that the threat landscape doesn't get to zero, but it gets to a much smaller number, which is key. And, you know, I, Alan, if you're okay with this, you know, one variant of the conversation, you know, Mitch, you brought up, how do you change authentication mechanisms? And, and we're starting to see, at least I'm starting to see in a lot of my conversations, companies try to deal with biometrics, facial recognition, for example, and having that become an acceptable way inside of an organization, let's not say corporation, just an organization, to have um, it be your authentication and your continual zero trust authentication mechanism as you're walking around. And there's still, I think, the problem of perception of what that can, you know, what you can do with that information or what is it watching? Did it see me scratch the side of my face? Did it see me messing with my hair? Or, um, you know, if I'm wearing a toupee, I don't want people to know as I'm shifting it around, walking down the hallway, kind of private information. But have, has anybody heard if there's going to be better acceptance? Because, well, no, I, I don't think there will be better. To the contrary, Matt, my, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, maybe you guys, I hear the problem with most a lot of the facial recognition is is inherent racism, right? It has a very hard time distinguishing black faces, and so a lot of a lot of people are shying away from using that now, right? Because you're going to have a problem with people of color, you know, being it, it being effective or not, and 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 if that and I don't know if that's the case or not because I don't know enough about the technology to know you know right from wrong, truth from fact or lie but that's what i'm hearing so if that's out there how the heck can we use it i think your basics comment is is dead on matt mitchell i'd love to live in the world where magic cadaver they know it's alan and the door opens for me but that's a world of magic abracadabra and and we're not going to get to abracadabra so quickly you know call me call me you know a, a stick in the mud but I'm, I'm done chasing those magic bullets i i've spent 20 years in security looking for my next magic bullet i don't i don't think it's there i think if it comes great but in the meantime what can we do today we could get back to basics we could try to cut down the fishing you know 85 percent of of breaches are coming from known exploits not not some super duper you know, zero day cooked up in a lab in Beijing or, or Wuhan or wherever, right? It, it, they're, they're coming from known CVEs that we didn't patch. They're coming from P 
people just didn't have good hygiene in their email. Can we, can we work on that while we leave the CIA to come up with the next magic bullet, abracadabra, or M6, or whoever works on these things? But that you have, it's a, it's a very valid point. There have been a lot of articles I've read, even as recently as this morning, that, you know, there's a lot of, you know, Homeland Security of the United States is highly recommending you patch. You have to patch. And when you look at the date they say you have to patch by, it was a week and a half ago. Right. And it's like, you know, and, and they're worried because people could be six months or a year away. Miranda, we've talked about the upticks we've seen in WannaCry. I mean, uh, oh, not- yeah. right. Oh, you mean that new, that new threat, WannaCry. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Miranda, are you still seeing that where you are? Well, we're still seeing, you know, companies not patched for eternal blue. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, no, it, 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 it is. So, you know, I, I think for anybody watching this saying, well, what can we do? I'm in healthcare and I'm worried. You know, you scared me with that ransomware thing. Or I'm worried about the pacemaker hack. It really starts with back to basics, right? Can we, can we patch what we already know is out there, right? I, I think back, you know, Mitchell and I, we, we co-founded Still Secure along with our friend Raj. And we had a vulnerability assessment and management tool. Was it 2003, Mitchell? Mm-hmm. Yeah, early 2002. And, you know, back then, the idea of patching, I don't even think Microsoft had Patch Tuesdays at this point. That's a, They were just right? coming out with Patch Tuesday. Nah. Right. There was a company called Citadel Hercules was the product that was sort of automated patching. DISA put a lot of money into it for the federal federal government. Um, people weren't doing it then. If you would have told me, if I could, you know, back to the future to 2002 and say, I'm sitting here on a Zoom video in the middle of a worldwide pandemic that no one can go out of their house and in 2020, and we're still not patching in a timely manner, I would have said, what happened? Did we all get stupid? Right? Why haven't we solved that basic problem? And now it manifests itself in something as important as healthcare. But whose problem is it, Alan? Here, here's my concern. When, if we rely on patching in healthcare, which I think is different than a lot of industry. It is. It's, it's a lot of embedded operating systems. It's yeah. Least operating systems where you cannot patch. I mean, we've, I, you know, in my history, I've helped companies that are still running Windows NT environments because they the, the amount of money it would take to get them off of these old systems is beyond their budgets, is beyond their capabilities. They can put controls in place to limit access to it. But, you know, Miranda, you were, you were covering the, the phishing and the vishing and in those kinds of attacks. The back to basics on top of patching, Alan, to me, is education. And done in a way where you're not insulting someone, as we were joking earlier, that may believe they're better than others or smarter than others, which most likely they are. Um, I, I promise you I would be a doctor if I could pass all those tests and, and I, I didn't, uh, if I like the sight of blood. But, you know, how do you help convince people? And, and that, it's a real psychology problem as well, that get back to basics, because 
again, if you're used to an environment that if I'm getting my email on my corporate device, this, this thing right here, I'm getting my email on it, and the hospital is required or I believe the hospital is protecting me, so I should only get valid stuff on here, how do you educate them? Do you introduce the concept of targeted training, right? Most companies do user education at least annually, but it, how many have you seen that are doing, all right, targeted training for medical professionals or healthcare professionals related to COVID? Um, how many companies do you see in the lead up to a special event like the upcoming elections, you know, training their employees specifically to look for potential attempts to exploit, you know, concerns or worries or, you know, whatever about, about the elections? Not to take off topic, but, you know, the no. concept exists, targeted training, right? Targeted, but there's two other things. I mean, something as basic as banners. The, the amount of pushback I've seen at companies where you, you flag any email that doesn't originate from your own corporate environment is flagged with external banner would cut down on a lot of people failing phishing tests, not realizing that I, the CISO of this corporation, did not just send you an email from some other URL asking you to click the link. If it says external and has my name, it's probably not me. You mean you didn't lose your wallet in Nairobi and you need me to wire you money right away? And I couldn't get access to your corporate account. <laughs> you couldn't get access to your corporate account. I mean, it's like, you know, these kinds of things, and, and I know we're sticking in healthcare, but a lot of the message can, can go beyond. But in healthcare, these are the things that I think you have to start focusing on is education. And then if you can... Help and, and Alan, I get your point around um, facial recognition, and I'm not a facial recognition expert. I'm not Neither a thumbprint recognition expert. I'm also not a, a voice recognition expert. But I've seen plenty of technologies, especially as people adopt zero trust concepts, where you can start thinking differently. And I think Miranda and Mitch, your points were you can stick with the legacy that stuff we did in 2000, 2002. 99, let's be honest, and hope for the best, or you can try to push for better, more optimal ways. And sometimes they're not, to your point, brain surgery or rocket science. You know, uh, one of the things that I've seen that I, I'm a big fan of lately is adaptive phishing training. Alan, if you get a phishing test in your organization, you pass, we're not going to bother you for 60 days. Mitch, you failed. We put seven indicators of... Uh, a fish in that email, you're going to get another one tomorrow with six. You better not fail it. Talk about wall of shame. Then five. <laughs> and, and we're going to tie it to your HR record. You know, you know, Matt, I think, I think there's another part of this back to the basics, you know, and we're talking largely about things that, you know, with end users, right, that are accessing the systems. So part of my background is running a company that provided digital certificates to device manufacturers, Wi-Fi, energy, medical um, uh, network. Uh, and it, we don't all realize it if you're not in the manufacturing world, but the the authenticity of devices and the man, amount of kind of fakery, if you will, of people that take a, P, a device and then make one look exactly like it. And digital certificates are used to really, before something can connect, right? Even talk on a network, it has to go through that handshake. And, and I think that's also part of that supply chain discussion. But fundamental to that is an infrastructure that we're doing the basics in. If you're not renewing certificates, a simple thing like that, 
you may shut off access to the network. I've gotten call from customers saying, what happened and why is this? I didn't even know there's a digital certificate in there. And now I can't get anybody on my network. How do I get a new certificate out there? Those are basics that within the infrastructure we also have to take care of because we can be just as uh, impactful to not being able to get your job done, deliver a service, do some medical procedure if we don't do that. That's very true. You know, another get back to basics that I'd be curious about, you know, we, we are, we're not victim shaming here, but you know, we, we tend to talk about what the end organization should be doing to fix the problems here. And one of the things we did broach in this conversation, I think really does impact and focus on healthcare is the fact that a lot of these environments cannot be upgraded, right? They're either locked by the manufacturer, they're owned by the manufacturer, you know, they're, oh, you don't want to be on that Windows 98 system anymore? Give us another 10 million bucks and we're going to get you on Windows 10 and you better hope that it does an EOL in four years because it's another 10 million bucks and it's a life-saving device. Have we ever thought about going back and pushing the manufacturers to change their protocols? So I I, I think, Matt, you're onto something. Ultimately, I think it is the manufacturer's responsibility to manufacture devices that can be upgraded, you know, locked down better, that are future-proof to a certain extent. I, I had this, again, back in my still secure days, I remember going, we went to a bunch of hospitals. This was around NAC, was first rolling out network, network access control. And we don't think about what has an IP on a network in a hospital. But, you know, if you've ever had IV, in a hospital, right? You have that IV pump. Well, that IV pump has telemetry that's showing back at the nurse's station how much fluids you're getting and so forth. That has an IP address. Can that IV pump be be updated, right? And if it can't be, and I got to replace all the IV pumps in a hospital, think about it. Each one of those IV pumps, I forgot what the number was, but back then it was like a 25 or 35K a pop because they you know they all have to be they all have to transmit telemetry forget pacemakers for a second just your basic ekg monitor the 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 wires they put on you the six wires and it reports in it, it very rarely report that those stations that used to be over your bed and you could see the you know you always see it on tv each one of those stations could be 100 100k a pop and then they still also have to report back to the central nurses station. So they're wired for the internet. If if those machines weren't designed to be upgradable, patchable, poor, poor design by the manufacturer, and it should be their responsibility. And if you're in a healthcare field, forget being a cyber person even right now, but you're responsible for, you know, choosing these kinds of IOT devices, right? Because that's kind of what they are. Um, And you're not picking devices that were designed with an upgrade path in place. You're you're, you're as responsible for that 89-year-old lady as as someone else. Well, maybe not as much as the hacker, but... You know, you you bear responsibility for that. Let alone, Matt, the MRI machines and the two and three million dollar pieces of equipment. 
Um, you know, I, I will tell you personally, I had an ablation procedure about a year and a half ago for AFib. And I, before they put me out, I was able to be in the cat lab watching all these high-tech monitors of, and they had my heart up on the monitor and everything. And I was, it was like Star Trek and the way, I mean, thank God the doctors did an amazing job and I haven't had a problem since. But this equipment, that was the new, that's the equipment that I would expect. And I spoke to a lady who actually ran the main machine that does the, the, the doctor works the catheter, but this catheter tests the nerves around your heart and decides which ones need to be isolated. This lady, she said, I'm a dinosaur because I was a nurse before I got into this and got trained. I'm the only one I know who actually has a medical background operating these machines. Most of the people operating the machines are engineers. A lot of times they they're from the manufacturer of the vendor. They are from the manufacturer, because the manufacturer is the only one who trains them. But those machines were designed with the internet in mind. They were designed to be upgraded. They were designed to be better secured as time goes on. I think overall we've gotten better at that. Far from perfect. But you still have to pay. It's still expensive. And if you're an old But that's part of it. Well, everything about healthcare is expensive. Uh, yeah, but you got to get the money. We bail out governments, bail out a lot of companies. Maybe it's time to to not again. I'm not trying to be inflammatory in this, but maybe it's time to bail out some hospitals to give them that upgrade. And and I agree. You know, I think. It, and again, I, I'm not going to call any medical company out, but let's be honest. A lot of companies design non-future proof equipment on purpose. Absolutely, it's a gravy train. If but, you're so, I'm, I'm going to throw something out there. I'm going to. I'm going to throw it out for my cybersecurity friends who are watching this. If we gave as much of a crap about making our medical equipment upgradable as we care about having personally identifiable information be, be locked down in HIPAA, we'd have a hell of a lot more better equipment now than we, than we do right now. And, and I think, you know, have we put the wrong emphasis in here on, on worrying about PII as much as we do? When we're, when we're losing sight of the real life and death of we need, we need these machines to be upgradable. Well, and they need to be current. And I mean, the technology needs to be, as you said, have some future path to whether it's a new product or an upgrade of it. And it also has to be reliable. I mean, that's part of it too, right? Of course, you know, in security is, is making sure that things are available. Um, I used to have a family member who had a mammogram and the system crashed in the middle of it. Now, not a life-saving situation, but can you imagine sitting there and some computer crashes that you're like, what the hell is that thing doing? And am I, what's, you know, my heart going to stop or what's going on? Uh, to your point, uh, Alan, if you had looked up at the screen and saw a blue screen of death, how would you have felt? Yeah. Pretty dead. <laughs> Pretty dead. I mean, but it was amazing. But you know what? Hey, I went to see the Rolling Stones in Miami last year and you know I saw Mick Jagger running around that screen he had heart valve transplant or heart valve replacement two or three months before via a catheter we're doing amazing things in medical no doubt about it why can't we get it right about improving the 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 security pathways for our medical devices so hopefully 
as people start to see, you know, to make this full circle, as people start to see that the infrastructure inside of hospitals that they've been stuck dealing with, how susceptible, and in a lot of cases, in a lot of countries, in a lot of regions of um, non-third world countries, how legacy and antiquated it is, how old it is. Like I said, it is not uncommon and does not, I don't even bat an eyebrow to see a Windows NT environment, to see Windows 98, to see these legacy systems. The only one that causes me consternation these days is when I see Windows ME, because at what point did you install that? Why would you have installed that? But, or Vista. Or Vista. But <laughs> it, it is the fact that over and over and over again, what I hear is we cannot upgrade, even if I wanted to. Even if I bought Windows 10 today, it will not work on that device. That device has never been patched, ever, ever, ever. And hopefully people can start seeing that we can go at them and say patch when they can't. We can go at them and say, hey, I, you need to do a digital transformation. You can't. Moving it to the cloud doesn't fix the fact that the systems on-prem in that hospital are susceptible. And most hospitals that I talk to don't have hundreds of millions of dollars of liquid cash sitting around to do those upgrades. And if they have to decide between upgrading something that works, it works to something that also works, but is new and maybe more secure or expanding a wing, adding more neonatal units, hiring more doctors, more nurses, you know which one they're gonna go because that's what they've been doing for the last 30 years. So and to it, your point, Matt, what do, you, what do you tell a client like that? Where do, you, where do you help them spend what limited resources they may have? One thing, that, one thing that we see a lot of is, okay, we can't patch the system, it's legacy, the manufacturer doesn't even exist anymore maybe. We, you can still guarantee you have visibility, right? And we're seeing a big uptick in demand for IoT monitoring, agentless monitoring, IOMT, medical things monitoring, um, and just making sure that it, at the very least you can see what's going on because I think a large number of, of you know, healthcare companies, they may have a lot of this, these devices in their network and they can't fix it, they can't patch it, but they also can't see it. So Miranda, are you talking about like augmenting these devices with some sort of visibility module, even if it's like a physical thing you put on there? Because I've seen this in manufacturing now as well. And we, uh, I mean, in, in MSS, we work a lot with agentless partners, so you don't even need to actually install something on the device itself, but it still allows, you know, cybersecurity professionals to gain visibility into what those devices are doing. This is terrible. They have, they have a fingerprint or a footprint that you can recognize. That's it. And, yeah. and you baseline, right? So you baseline and you verify that that's a good known set of traffic and any deviation from that baseline is investigated. I was just thinking about the patching, you know, when I was in the device security world, it, they were just starting to think about doing updating of IoT and, and other devices, right? Now you can buy routers that will auto set to auto update, but how many, how many cameras are out there? How many, um, let me monitor my blood pressure. That, there's a lot of legacy stuff there that isn't even upgradable, more or less set to upgrade it, its own software or users who would even know or want to do that. It's a lot of legacy stuff. 
It's, it's a legacy mindset. And Alan, you said something a little while ago that I, I really agree with. It's, it's a mindset change. And the manufacturers have got to start thinking that way and putting cybersecurity, putting upgrade, putting monitoring in and taking this seriously. You know, we could have a whole conversation on cameras and how most cameras out there that you can buy off the Internet are all running the same operating system, all have the same default password, all have the same protocols and all have the same bugs because mm -hmm. the manufacturer wasn't interested in security, but they were interested in how cheap can I make this device and still differentiate it in the market so I can sell a bunch of them. And well, I think and take it one more step, Matt. I agree with what you're saying. Take it one more step. My observation was the fundamental change next is changing the business model because those manufacturers make those devices, sell them, we're done. We're, we're on to designing the next edition for next world, whatever, the next, uh, next year for whatever the model is going to be. They were not in the past set up to even do patching to software or, or even no, there was no upgrade that. path. Now that's part of the model. That's part of the business. You got, you've got to do that. Yep. So I, I think the onus, instead of being placed on these hospitals, the individual hospitals needs to be passed to the manufacturer and, and, you know, it, it has to be that way. Hey guys, we're we're uh, yeah, we're ridiculously over time actually, but uh, <laughs> yeah, but that's okay. That's okay. It's okay. Um, you know, whose I gotta, turn was it to watch the clock? It wasn't <laughs> me, but I I got to be honest with you. I am so thrilled that we had a, a discussion on cybersecurity and healthcare, and it wasn't focused on HIPAA. Kudos to all three of you. You know, it was, that was the that was the word of the day, Alan. No HIPAA. We no HIPAA. I'm gonna. I think that's what we're gonna title this one: Cybersecurity, Healthcare, No HIPAA. I got the email. Did you all get that email? No HIPAA on the. No, I, I must. I must have missed that one. But um, what a great show! What a great show, Miranda. Will you come back and visit us again and and uh, add in here to the to the chorus? Sure. Thank you guys for having me. Thanks for thinking of me, Matt. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, Miranda. Mitchell, as always, thank you very much. Matt, what can I say? I'm sorry it took us so long to get our next episode done, but we've got another one coming up really soon. We're going to discuss, I think we're going to discuss why every tech vendor should have a CISO and the, and the mysterious case of the Uber CISO. Absolutely. Uh, what's happening there. So that's going to be our next one. But for now, hey, we're going to wrap this CISO Talk episode up. Miranda Ritchie, IBM, thank you for joining us. Mitchell, Matt, thank you. This is Alan Schimmel. Catch us on our next CISO Talk show. But for now, we're out.